Hey, good morning, Crossroads. So one of the great things about being a grandparent is that I get to read Dr. Seuss again. Like, whoa, so cool. Like, to think I saw it on Mulberry Street. I have a witness here. Like, how wonderful his books are. And Horton, let's see, uh, that elephant, Horton, an elephant's faithful 100%. Like, but the last book he wrote has some interesting advice for kids. And I thought you might like to hear it. It goes like this. You'll be on your way up. You'll be seeing great sights. You'll join the high flyers who soar to great heights. You won't lag behind because you'll have the speed. You'll pass the whole gang and you'll soon take the lead. And wherever you fly, you'll be the best of the best. And wherever you go, you will top all the rest. Except when you don't. <laughs> because sometimes you won't. I'm sorry to say so, but sadly it's true that bang-ups and hang-ups can happen to you. And you get all hung up in a prickly perch, and your gang will fly on and leave you in a lurch. Ain't that the truth? And you'll come down from the lurch with an unpleasant bump, and the chances are then that you'll be in a slump. And when you're in a slump, you're not in for much fun. And unslumping yourself is not easily done. I think Job had it right when he said that man is born to trouble like the sparks fly upward. Scott Willis was pastor, bivocational pastor of a little congregation on the south side of Chicago. He and his wife Janet were just common people like you and me, except for the fact they had nine kids. Three of them were married and had moved away, and the other six were still living at home. So one day they decided to go up to Milwaukee to visit one of their married kids and packed the kids into the van and took off. As they were skirting Milwaukee on the interstate, a truck in front of them dropped a piece of metal on the highway. Scott couldn't avoid it and went under the van, kicked up and pierced the fuel tank, and as it dragged, the sparks set the whole van on an inferno of flame. Scott and Janet managed to roll out into the median and extinguish the fire on their own clothes in the grass. Think of this. And then they looked back and watched five of their six children burned to death. And the sixth one would die in the hospital from inhaling toxic flames. For them unslumping themselves was not only uneasily done, I think you and I would agree that unslumping yourself seems impossible. So what do we do when the inevitability of trouble impacts our lives? Well, thankfully, God's Word has some things to help us with these kinds of things. We go to a lot of texts, but this morning I've chosen Psalm 46. So if you'll open your Bibles and turn on your devices, let's go to Psalm 46. I've had the joy of sharing God's word here before, and one time I didn't ask people to stand. And some lady shouted out, hey, we stand up for the Bible here. <laughs> so I'm not going to let that happen again. <laughs> so let's stand up. And we have a little drill we're going to go through here. Um, I'm going to read the text, 
And then two of these slides have a verse underlined. And we're all going to read the underlined verse. All right? It's not real complicated. God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where he dwells from the Most High. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at the break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice, and the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see what the Lord has done, the desolations he has brought to the earth. He makes the wars to cease. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. May God add his blessings to the reading of his word. You may be seated. So the psalmist begins with this declaration. He says, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. And then he introduces the site of cataclysmic disasters. I mean, trouble on steroids. The earth, the mountains are moved into the heart of the sea. The waters roar and foam. The mountains tremble. And then he takes us to the city of God where it's peaceful. Like your, your, trouble, your life might be in chaos, but you just need to know in God's presence all is well. And then he unleashes this important thought that God's unrivaled power can always gain the victory over anything. He makes the wars to cease. He has brought desolations on the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. No wonder that we could say together, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Now it's verse 10 that gives us the instruction. In verse 10 we read, be still and know that I am God. So let's say that together. All right, so I've heard that verse a lot of times in my life. I used to meet, think it meant to be still, like stop wiggling. Like having grown up in church world, I still, I think I've got like my mom's fingerprints embedded in my knee, like, <laughs> like Joe, sit still, sit still. <laughs> well, that never made much sense to me in this text until you uncover the Hebrew meaning of it. It literally means to cease striving. And isn't that the right picture of what we're like when trouble hits us? Our hearts just go into striving mode, and God says, cease striving. Uh, the Hebrew word is used at times, it's a beautiful metaphor, to put your hands down to your side. Kind of like move into relax mode. 
And I think that's an interesting metaphor because we can, with our hands, we can tell what we normally do with trouble. We're like, what? How did that happen? Or I'll get back at you. <laughs> or I'm going to defend myself. Or I'm going to set a distance here. And this would be a really good exercise for us. Everybody stand up. Let's do the hand thing, right? All right, so when trouble impacts our lives, we're going like, what? Or we go like, I'm going to get back at you. Or I'm going to defend myself. Or I'm going to distance. You guys are great. You did fabulous. You should be seated. <laughs> but the word from the Lord is that we do none of those. X those out. And let's put our hands down to our side and see striving. Now, I, I think the challenge with that, because that makes me feel like I'm so vulnerable, so out of control. And if that's all we had in the text is just see striving, I don't know how I'd navigate that. But the verse goes on to say, 46.10, goes on to say, see striving, how do you do that? You know something that I am God. Now, here's an important uh, observation, I think, is that normally when trouble hits us, our driving response is our emotions. And that always leads us into danger. How you feel in the midst of trouble cannot be the driving force of navigating trouble. It's like the caboose driving the train. Um, so the text doesn't say be still and kind of feel good about God or feel your emotions. But it says be still and know something. So there is no, something you can know about your God in the midst of trouble that will enable you to navigate it in a strivingless way. The first one is we have it in our text. At the end of verse 10, he says, I will be exalted among the nations. I'm going to give you five things you can know about God, all right? The first thing is, I will be exalted among the nations. So here Israel is in dramatic trouble. And he says, I'm not going to let you I'm not going to throw you under the bus. I'm not going to make you roadkill because I will be exalted among the nations. You need to know that God is jealous for his glory. You and I are his children. It would be a horrible stain on his glory if he let us just get gobbled up, spewed, spewed out in the midst of the troubles of life. Satan would rejoice in telling all the cosmic hosts, that, yeah, that's the kind of God you got. So it's important to know this, that God's reputation rides on the back of your problem. And he will be exalted. He's jealous for his glory. The second one comes from, if we're gonna talk about trouble this morning, you gotta think about Job, right? So the second reality that we can know is mind out of Job chapter one. In Job chapter 1, as you know the story, Satan comes before the throne of God, and God says, where have you been? He says, wandering to and fro throughout the earth. Sometimes I travel a little bit and come home, Marty's going like, where have you been? I'm going traveling to and fro throughout the earth. <laughs> That's where the parallel stops, by the way. <laughs> and so God says to him, 
I just love this. God says, hey, did you see my man Job, who's a righteous man? I'm telling you right now, I would live for the day, wouldn't you, where God could say to our adversary, do you see my woman? Do you see my man down there? And at that moment, Satan slanders the character of God for the whole cosmic host. And he says to God, I saw Job, but he would not be a righteous man if you hadn't been good to him. You're good to him, that makes him right, want to be righteous. What he is saying is, listen carefully to this, is you are not a God who is worthy to be praised and worshiped regardless. You have to buy people's favor. You have to buy people's loyalty. And Satan slandered the very character of God amongst the whole cosmic hosts. And God said, okay, let's do a test. Let's do a test and we'll see. And he'd unleashed Satan's trouble into Job's life. And knowing that, by the way, just a couple things here. I think sometimes we think we have trouble. God has a plan and a purpose. And can I pick that up for you? <laughs> God, God has a plan and a purpose, but it's always kind of like earthbound stuff. Did it ever cross our, our broken little minds that maybe our suffering is for some cosmic good, something totally outside of the sphere of my existence? And I just want to say to Job, Job, if you only knew what was going on, hang in there. Like, and then I want to say to his wife, sweetheart, I got don't say that. Because <laughs> she has this horrible advice for Job like, curse God and die. It's exactly what Satan wanted to have happen. So number two, in your trouble, you must know this, that God has a plan and a purpose. No trouble in a believer's life is ever random. God has a plan, and God has a purpose. The third thing we can know is from Job as well, because I find it interesting when God unleashes Satan's trouble into Job's life, is that he limits Satan. You, can, you can't do this to him, you can't do this to him, you can't do this to him. Number three, know that God is in sovereign control of your problem that he stands like a sovereign sentinel at every gateway of your life and won't let anything in that he can't control and work out to his plan. I love that. The God who knows my load limit always limits my load and stands as that sovereign sentinel and only lets those things in that he can control. And number four, that he can control to your good and his glory. This is the Romans 8 thing, right? All things work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. That, that first phrase is huge, not like some things or Barbara's problem or whatever. All things, all things. God, 
God has the power, like I love the unleashed, unrivaled power in Psalm 46. God can make the wars to cease. We can't do that. How many, t- you know, how hard have we been working to have peace on earth? Like, who can make, God has that power. And if you wonder, if you ever wondered if God can turn the worst things into what is good, just look at the cross. I can't imagine a worse thing on this planet. I don't know what your sufferings are, but they don't compare to the agony of the cross of Christ. It's a horrible moment. We took God in the flesh and accused him of being a wanton criminal, and then crucified him naked in shame before a watching world. And I'm going like, that's horrible. And he goes to the grave, and if that's all you had, you'd think, Wow. I guess God doesn't have the power to turn something like that into that, which is good. In fact, I think that hell had a three-day party. Like, we won. This is a huge cosmic victory. I mean, Satan has now killed off the Messiah who is going to conquer his kingdom. Big party, like, whoa. And I see Satan sitting on his throne like Jabba the Hutt, like, whoa, whoa, we won. <laughs> and then some... Some demon, you know, the chief demon comes along to go, dude, I got bad news for you. Three days into the party, he's alive. And so if God could, (laughs) seriously, I just have to look at the cross and look at an empty tomb. You need to know that God has the power and can take your most horrible life situation and ultimately turn it into what what is good. There was a time in Marty, in my life when, we were kind of taken with jigsaw puzzles, which was a troubling thought, given the fact that the only time I had ever seen them was in nursing homes, right? Like, <laughs> <coughs> but the thing that got us was the box tops. Like, there was one that had a whole stack of Oreo cookies with a glass of milk buried in the mountain of Oreo cookies. Like, we couldn't resist. We had to buy that. And another one was like a triple-decker hamburger with mayonnaise and mustard leaking out of it and tomatoes and lettuce. And like, wow, we got to buy that. And we bought both of them. And we took, took them home and we opened one up, just in ecstasy. Like, and we threw the pieces on the table. And suddenly our ecstasy turned into despair. <laughs> like, what is this? You know, our trouble will feel like that often, just scattered pieces that make no sense and seemingly there is no answer and it's like confusion and, and the only thing that took us through is to look back at the box top. This also ultimately does make sense. I came all the way from Cornerstone to tell you today that God is the God of the box tops. Seriously. He knows how to put it together. He knows how to make it right. Number four, that all things will work together for good. And number five is the old James 1 one, right? Like, count it all joy. By the way, that's not like laughing through a problem. God never expects that. Dallas Willard has a great definition of joy. It's that, he says it's that inner sense of well-being. Hmm. Count it all joy when you fall into various troubles. Interesting, knowing this, knowing, knowing this, that God's going to use those troubles 
to bless your life and to make you better as a person. Five things you can know about God when trouble impacts your life. I have a lot of favorite sports memories. This is going to date me like ancient history. But one right up near the top is the 1980 Olympics in, in America. You've got to get the context of where we were where is the, as America. Like we had double-digit mortgage, mortgage interest rates. Jimmy Carter was our president. He, as the chief cheerleader, he said, we are in malaise in America. Thanks, that was encouraging. And... Um, and then Iran had 18 American citizens held hostage for days. And so we, we got our crack troops together to send them over and liberate them. And our helicopters crashed in sandstorms in the desert. Like, And then Russia was like, oh, the big enemy, like, they, like the superpower. And we were like, nothing. And so Lake Placid, New York is the setting of what happened. And our hockey team was playing Russia. In those days, professional hockey players couldn't play in the Olympics, just college kids. So here our college players were playing against genetically engineered Russian <laughs> hockey players. And talk about malaise, we're just gonna like, if we were discouraged before this, like internationally, we're really gonna be this. I went to church that morning, I came back, and the game was about half done. I flicked on the TV, and we were tied. I mean, I couldn't believe it. I, I paid for the whole couch, but I sat on the front third. And I'm going like, and it was like total anxiety. Like, what? This is the nail biter of all nail biters. Like, whoa. And then we won. I couldn't believe it. We won. Amazing. It was so big that if I remember correctly, they replayed it on TV that night, and I turned the TV on to watch the whole game. It's a little different now. Sat back on the whole couch, had a bowl of popcorn, Pepsi, totally relaxed, no striving. What made the difference? Good for you. It was something that I knew that made the difference. You're probably saying, yeah, if God would tell me how my trouble will end, I can relax too, you know, like. <laughs> but what God calls us to is not necessarily knowing the outcome, but knowing the one who manages the outcome. Marty and I visited on vacation one time a little tiny Baptist church way out in the country, just a little village, slipped into the back row, and we sang a lot of the same choruses we sing here. And then the pastor said, I'm asking sister, I don't know her name, sister so-and-so to come up and read the church prayers. She came up and shuffled some papers on the pulpit and began to pray. About halfway through her prayer, she said, Lord, please be with Peter and Sally who lost their little child today, their, this week. Then she said, Lord, we can't understand why you've taken three little babies from our church this year. And I'm going like, what? Three little babies died in that little congregation? How can that be? And then she just began to sob. And when she got control of herself, I'll never forget this. 
She said, but Lord, it's not ours to ask why, but to trust you. So teach us to trust you. Teach us to trust you. Be still and know I'm God. I got your back. So knowing what we know, how do you navigate it? What are the steps to navigate through the trouble based on this knowledge? And I think it's interesting that a lot of the Psalms were written out of the historic, real history of Israel. So they just weren't like somebody sat down and wrote a hundred Jewish songs and put it in the psaltery. It's rather that a lot of these are mined out of personal challenges and national challenges. So scholars enjoy trying to figure out what psalm relates to what point in Israel's history. And most scholars feel like this psalm is rooted in the history of King Jehoshaphat of the land of Judah, which we have talked about and the story told in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Turn there with me. Five steps to navigate. Jehoshaphat is the righteous king of Judah, so bad things do happen to good people. And Judah's just two tribes and a really tiny little army, defenseless, basically. So he gets some really bad news in verse 1. It says, after this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, and with some of them, Menuhites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. So you just need to know right now, this is really bad news. He doesn't stand a chance. Militarily, he will be gobbled up, taken away as, as a captive. This is like headline, bad news. Trouble is coming. That's what I love what he does, number one, to navigate the problem. It, the text says he turned his face to the Lord. So here's what we're often tempted to do. We see ourselves, we see the problem, and then we interpret God through the problem. Not a good thing to do because God will always end up being the bad guy. And will always separate your heart from the one you need so desperately to go through the problem. What jo Jehoshaphat did in light of the problem, immediately turned his face to the Lord so he could see the problem through the lens of who God is. Step one. Step two to navigate trouble is reject unrighteous options. Anytime we're buffeted, I mean, think of like bitterness, anger, revenge. I mean, you've got a lot of unrighteous options for you. Well, his unrighteous option, which we read in the history of Israel, often kings, especially of the northern kingdom, when they had an army attacking them, instead of trusting in God to deliver them, they'd strike treaties with pagan nations and get pagan nations to side up with them so that them and the pagan nations could beat these people. Guess who gets the glory? The pagan nations. That annoys God. That annoys him. Because he wants to deliver you. He wants to get the glory. And so I'm so thankful that Jehoshaphat rejected that unrighteous option that he had and trusted in his God. 
So you just need to know that Satan will be constantly whispering in your ear, do this, do this, do this, this will help you. Measure it by the truth of God's word. He is a liar and a murderer from the beginning, Jesus told us. And he wants you to believe his lies and act through on his lies. I just want to encourage you. Step two, you've got to reject unrighteous options. The third step that Jehoshaphat took was to recall the history of what God has done. This often happens if you read through the Old Testament when people are up against like undefendable odds. They would stop and say, yes, but do you remember when God delivered us from this army? And do you remember when God delivered us from this army? Do you remember what God did here? And suddenly their faith was bolstered by recalling the goodness of God for them. I like the fact that often in Scripture we're encouraged not just to meditate on the Word of God, but to meditate on the works of God, lest we forget. And in the midst of trouble, just to look in the rearview mirror and remind yourself of what God has done, how he has gained the victory. Remind yourself of those steps of goodness that remind you that he does love you and he does care for you. And for those of us who are saying this morning, yeah, but God's never done anything for me. (laughs) So I just want you to know, if he does nothing else, then cancel your hell and guarantee your heaven. He's already done enough for you to believe that he has the power to help you. Step three, recall what kind of a God you have. Look in the rearview mirror, do the history. Step number four, go to his word. So Jehoshaphat gathers together a sacred assembly. I don't have time to read the whole text. Read it this afternoon. I'm just giving you the narrative here. Trust me. Like the used car salesman says, right? Like, <laughs> just trust me. So he calls this solemn assembly and gets the prophet to come, the preacher to come and preach a message. And the preacher does it, takes them to the word of God. And this was the word of God for them. The preacher finally got to this point when he said, The battle is not yours, it is the Lord's. It's a good word from the word right there. The battle is not yours, it is the Lord's. Go to the word, grab a promise, grab a principle, embrace it, don't let it go. Let it be the driving energy of your heart through every single trouble that you face. And number five, obey. At the end of the prophet's message, he said, okay, Jehoshaphat, here's what you need to do. Tomorrow morning when you get up, gather your army together and go out against these huge armies that are waiting to destroy you. For Jehoshaphat, that's hard obedience. He doesn't stand a chance. I think obedience is hard in the midst of trouble. To obey Jesus when he says, love your enemies, bless those who curse you. Reject bitterness and and despair. Pray for those who despitefully use you. To obey enough to really trust him. 
Obedience is difficult. But thankfully, Jehoshaphat got up the next morning and obeyed. Got his army together. That was what I like. He put all the he took brought the musicians and put them first. Going, he must be really annoyed with the kind of music they've been playing recently. <laughs> like, <laughs> but do you know why he did that? It's just a reflection of his confidence in God. They would go at the front of the army, singing and leading Israel, Judah in the praises to their God. They would make this grand announcement that their God is worthy to be praised regardless. So all the nations could hear. And they went out. Now, I just have to say here that God may be, not be this dramatic with your problem, but it proves that like he's a pretty powerful God. So they got to the edge of the hill where they looked down into the valley where these massive armies were gathered. And to shock... They were all dead because God woke them up in the middle of the night and they were confused and thought they were being attacked and in the darkness without lamps or anything, they just started whipping their swords out and they had killed each other. Like, wow, he makes wars to cease. He's got that kind of power, amazing. And God won the victory. Be still and know that I am God. So Scott and Janet were taken to a local hospital in Milwaukee. And interestingly enough, the next day they called a press conference. First of all, this accident obviously had caught the attention of all the Milwaukee and Chicago media. Everybody kind of knew about it. The Chicago Tribune reported this. Burned, bandaged, and still in physical pain in a Milwaukee area hospital, the couple displayed extraordinary grace and courage Wednesday as they calmly presided over a news conference they had requested to tell of how their unquestioning belief has sustained them through the loss of six of their nine children. At the news conference, Scott said, according to the Tribune, I know God has purposes and God has reasons. God has demonstrated his love to us and our family. There is no question in our mind that God is good, and we praise him in all things. Wow. A few days later, in a lead editorial in the Chicago Tribune, it heralded the strength of the Willis's faith by quoting Scott as saying, I must tell you, we hurt and sorrow as you parents would for your children. The depth of pain, he says, is indescribable. But the Bible expresses our feelings and ours that we sorrow, but not as others who have no hope. The writer of the editorial continued, hope is founded in faith and in conviction. In Janet Willis's word, quote, he is the giver and taker of life, and he sustains us. Janet... The editorial continues, Janet and Scott are clearly in touch with the redemptive world within, while aware of the short, nasty, brutish world around them. If for them life was defined by this present world alone, the editorialist says, the devastations would have been overwhelming. It continued this other world point of view that prompted Scott to declare, Janet and I have had to realize that we're not taking the short view of life. We take the long view, 
and that includes eternal life. And then the editorialist concluded with this observation. In the Tribune, he wrote, there are only two possible responses to the kind of loss that Duane and Janet Willis suffered last week. Utter despair or unquestioning faith. He concludes for the Willises, despair was never an option. Unslumping yourself is not easily done, but with God's help and God's perspectives, it is possible. A lot of us watched football yesterday. Anybody watch football yesterday? Anybody glad that Rod's not here to brag on Michigan? <laughs> Stop. Dude, we're one in Jesus. Don't bring that in. Come on. <laughs> so we probably watched a lot of football yesterday. And for those of you who aren't football fans, you need to know the quarterbacks have trouble sometimes. And they need to try to unslump themselves. And it happens sometimes by going up under the center and all of a sudden looking at the defense and going, oh my, like that's a bad lineup. You know, this is trouble. And so right there at the line, they've got to call an audible, which changes their play. It's like 89-9 or 16-4. So... When you come up to the line of life and look across that line and see that trouble, you have to call an audible. 4610 is the audible you call. And when you see a brother or a sister who's deep in unslumpable territory, you just have to take them by the shoulders, look them right in the eye and say, 4610, 4610. Be still and know I'm God. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful that we can have confidence and courage that you indeed do manage the outcomes for your glory and for our good. Just help us to stay by the stuff and to be faithful and loyal through it all. We pray this in the wonderful, powerful name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior and our champion. Amen and amen.